Alright, so we will be in Jonah chapter 4 today. We will be finishing our study of the book of Jonah today. But guys, I, got a, I have a question for you. To get our minds thinking about this character named Jonah that we're going to look at today. Have you guys ever had that person in your life or you ever met that person that just when you thought you had figured them out, then they go and do something that makes you just scratch your head even more. Or maybe pull your hair out. You just can't figure this person out. You can't figure their... You know, if you've, if you've raised kids, you see that a lot. <laughs> About the time you think you got them figured out. Uh, but really, that's, 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 I pose that question because that's the way I feel looking at Jonah. When we look at the fourth chapter of Jonah, that's how I feel personally. When I, when I look at him, when I look at his life. Um, because in chapters, you know we, know, we know the story by way of review. Chapter 1, the, the, the Lord gave him a command as, as, his, as his prophet and uh, to go to... Let me, let me turn over to Jonah anyway. To go, you know, to go to Nineveh. Rise and go to Nineveh. And, and we know the story, right? He went the other way. He rebelled. And then in chapter 2, through God's providence, through sending the storm and really God's discipline in hand, he seemed to have got Jonah's attention. It says he cried out to the Lord in chapter 2. Uh, obviously, he was at the bottom of the sea, so that's a good thing to do, to cry out to the Lord. But, but he cried out to the Lord. And then in chapter 3, we looked at last week, his, his actions even changed. He responded to the second, the second similar call, or really the exact same call. Go to Nineveh. And, and so this time, we see him do it. We see him being obedient. He made a U-turn, in other words. He went from going to, 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 or to, to Tarshish and, and to go to Nineveh. So we saw this change outwardly. But as the old saying goes, I don't know where it came from. Eventually, we see in chapter 4, the bottom fell out with Jonah. It's like, what is this guy thinking? What's he doing? And so that's what we're going to see today. But I don't want you to lose sight, guys. The, 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 main, the main character in the story, I believe, is the God of compassion. He is a God of compassion. So there's no scratch in our head uh, about the Lord. Obviously, we know that, that we talked about last week. The Lord doesn't change in, in His nature, who He is. He is. He's always compassionate. He's always holy. He's always just. He's consistent. So there's no scratch in our head with God, but with Jonah... Is, as we'll see in this text today, it is um, it's very interesting. And so the theme today, guys, if you have your, if you have your bulletin on the back, uh, there's an outline for you. And so the main theme of the, of the sermon today is this. And I, and I believe it's the, really the theme of the book of Jonah and really one of the main themes of the entire Bible. If you are doing biblical theology and want to know what, what's the... One of the main themes of the Bible, I think this would be very similar to this, and it's this. God's sovereign, compassionate, and gracious redemptive purposes will never be thwarted by selfish, sinful humanity. Okay? Read it again. God's sovereign, compassionate, and gracious redemptive purposes will never be thwarted by selfish, sinful humanity. So no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's going on with Jonah, no matter what's going on in our day, no matter how obedient or disobedient we are, no matter how dark the world gets, no matter what kind of 
maybe revivals we see at different stages or what kind of uh, wicked kings God allows to rise up and wicked governments and all of these different things, nothing's going to thwart His purpose. His purpose of redemption is His main purpose. So everything that goes on in this world is under, is under God's sovereign... Obvious, obviously it's under God's sovereignty, but, but even more specifically, God has a redemptive purpose in saving His people. That's like the main idea of human history is God saving His people. And so everything that happens in the world all falls under that. So I think that's the, uh, the theme of this chapter as well. So now I'm going to read Jonah chapter 4, guys. After, after what we looked at the last couple weeks, we're going, to, we're going to see a very, very interesting chapter. It, really in the Bible here. But Jonah chapter 4 says this, But it... Now what, what is it? We know it is referring to verse 10 that we looked at last week. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. So that is the it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents, concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better, better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Father, we thank You once again, Lord, as always, for Your Word. And Lord, we know that Your Word says that when Your Word goes forth, You will accomplish Your purposes and what You set it out for. And so, Father, trust in that promise today, Lord. I, I just trust that Your Word will do its work in our hearts today, that You will cleanse us of sin, that You will cleanse us of any ideas that we have in our minds that are not biblical, that You will um, just grant us repentance in any area we need it, Lord, that You will strengthen us, that You will encourage us, that You will build up our faith, Lord, that we will, that we will love Christ more, Lord, after, after being in Your Word today and, and seeing, being reminded how compassionate You are. 
So, Father, we just entrust this time to You. I ask You to help me, Lord, to speak Your Word clearly today. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Alright, so I'm going to repeat that theme again. God's sovereign, compassionate, and gracious, redemptive purposes will never be thwarted by selfish, sinful humanity. So the sermon is broken up in three points today on your, on your outlines. We're going to look at... We're going to look at uh, Jonah's actions here and his attitudes. We're going to look look at the Lord's words and deeds, and then we're going to see how the Lord compares the two here. And so, the reason I didn't put scripture references it's it's not just a clean cut. You know, uh, point number one is verses one, two, and three. The next point is it's kind of a back and forth. So, the first thing we're going to look at, point number one, is Jonah's selfishness or Jonah's gross selfishness and pride because it is gross when you look at it his gross selfishness and pride and with four sub points the first one we're going to spend the most time on and it's and it's there in verses one through three and it's that 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 jonah is angry at god's saving grace just that statement alone this is a prophet of god and and the bible clearly communicates that he is angry at God's saving grace. What an astounding statement. This guy, guys, this is the word. This is the word that, that I use in, in my introduction. You know, having those people that you just can't figure them out. Jonah is an enigma. This guy is an enigma. If you don't know what that word means, it just, it just means a person or thing that, it, that is mysterious. Okay? Puzzling. Difficult to understand. I can't figure this guy out. <laughs> right? We... I, you thought you maybe had him figured out a little bit, but of course you know chapter 4 is coming. But we had to wait until we got here. Yeah, this guy's hard to understand. About the start, and, I, and I mentioned this just a few minutes ago by, by way of review. You know, we, we thought we maybe, you know, you started feeling a little better about him, right? He, he fled from the presence of the Lord, and then God, through, through His providence, sent a storm, cast him into the sea. He cries out to the Lord. God rescues him. He responds in obedience. He goes to Nineveh and at least preaches what God told him to do. But now we see the real truth in chapter 4. Now this, really this mess that you see in chapter 4. So what do we see here? The very thing that causes God, okay, if you look at chapter 3, verse 9, the very thing that causes uh, God to turn away His anger when the king said in chapter 3, verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. That very thing causes Jonah, who is the prophet of God, to become angry. Beloved, the things that please God should please us. If you want to know if you're on the right track in your Christian walk, the things that please God should please you. And if they don't, guys... God's not in the wrong. We're in the wrong. Always. If, any of the, if, if you see yourself being upset by what pleases God, there needs to be some repentance. And again, what displeased Jonah? What, what did displease him? What did make him angry? Verse 10 that we looked at last week. When God saw their deeds, the Ninevites, that, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity. We know that He... He, he gave them grace. He gave them mercy. And that's what made Jonah angry. It's, it's astounding. Listen to what Luke 15.10 says. 
There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Isn't that beautiful? When one sinner repents, and, and don't get... It's not even the angels that it's talking about. It's just in the presence of the angels. That means in heaven, before the throne of God. Before the triune God, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That, that verse has always been such a blessing to read. You just see the heart of God. And so we see this guy Jonah, this enigma that he's angry because God demonstrated mercy to a sinful people. Not to mention what makes it even more astounding is he had just been a recipient of the mercy of God. Right? When he was sinking to the bottom of the sea. God showed him mercy. He saved him. Physically. And so why is it? Okay, we know that he's angry because of God's grace to the Ninevites. But but I guess the next question, maybe dig a little deeper, which the Bible doesn't, doesn't tell us Exactly, but, but I think it's good to think about. Why is it that, that this causes him to be angry? And so before I give a few uh, possible answers, listen to what Matthew Henry says, because I think he nails it. Because this is the way I felt as I was looking at these maybe different... What's causing him to be angry about, about God's grace to the Ninevites? Matthew Henry says this, But why was Jonah so uneasy at it? that the Ninevites repented and were spared. Matthew Henry's asking that question. He says this, It cannot be expected that we should give any good reason for a thing so very absurd and unreasonable. (laughs) No, nor anything that has the face or color of a reason. But we can only conjecture what the provocation was. In other words... This is so absurd that a prophet of God would be angry at a, at, at a people, at God saving a, a large group of people. That it's, it's so absurd that we can't know for sure what was going on through his mind if the text doesn't tell us. Now the text does tell us that he was angry that God is gracious, but what was going through his mind? What exactly was going through his mind? There are three or four possibilities here with probably a combination of of, of multiple reasons. But these are some of the things that could have been going through this uh, really prideful prophet's mind. The first one is this. Just his disgust in his mind for God's lack of justice. Even thinking, man, I've got more of an understanding of justice than you do, Lord. Which would reveal... All of this would reveal tremendous pride on Jonah's part or anybody who thought like this. In other words... Hey, yeah, there are sinners in the world. I know I'm a sinner. And then there are sinners. And these Ninevites were sinners, God. How in the world could you forgive such horrible, wretched sinners like this? And you know, many in our our culture have this mindset. I think every unconverted person would have that mindset to a certain degree. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not like fill-in-the-blank. I'm not like Osama bin Laden. Now that's a sinner. He deserves God's judgment. So it could have been that. That could have at least been part of it. Or maybe the honor of his own nation. Okay? What do I mean by that? The honor of his own nation. That, In other words, there's a, there's a jealousy there. Israel hasn't repented, but these Ninevites repented God. How could you do that? The prophet of God, knowing the sovereignty of God, 
How could you grant these repentance when, when the nation of Israel hasn't even repented? My own country. That's the word he uses in, in verse 1 in the, in the NAS. My own country. My own Israelites don't repent, but these people do. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. You can see this, you can see this mindset in the Scriptures. Romans chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, Paul quotes Moses and Isaiah here. From the Old Testament. And listen to this. You hear this jealousy. So this could have been going through Jonah's mind as well. Paul says in Romans 10.19, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. It's exactly what's going on in Jonah's heart. He is angry that these Ninevites have repented. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21. But, so you know he's talking about the Gentiles there because of verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So, Jonah being a prophet of God to the northern kingdom, he would have recognized this. Israel's not even repentant, but these people repent? I knew you would do this, God. And then thirdly, which I think, I think thirdly, and again, I think it's probably a combination of all this going on in this guy's mind, but, but thirdly, it's probably the most common that we've heard. His prejudice toward the Ninevites specifically as enemies of Israel. They were indeed enemies of Israel. And so he, he had a prejudice. He didn't like them. Okay? I think it's safe to say he hated them. Which again is even more troubling coming from a prophet of God. His prejudice toward the Ninevites who were enemies of Israel. As a prophet of God, that see, that's what makes it so absurd. We expect this from unbelieving Jews, right? Unbelievers in our day, but from a prophet of God, he should have, had, he should have rejoiced in the salvation of such a wicked city like the Jews that you read about in Acts chapter 11, verse 18. It says this, this was, uh, of course, when the Gentiles had repented in the, in the book of Acts through Peter's preaching. And then it says this, when they, meaning the Jews of that, of that day, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. That's how you see the Jews reacting in the book of Acts. They glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That's the proper response. And that's the furthest thing you see in Jonah here. And then, it could be any of these. could be a, probably a combination of these. And then, and then lastly, some have suggested that Jonah was angry because it made him look like a false prophet. You said you were going to overthrow them. You didn't. Okay, That was also a reason that was included. The fact is, we don't know exactly because it doesn't tell us. But like Matthew Henry said, it's absurd. This is so absurd coming from a prophet of God to have this kind of thinking. Now as far as being a false prophet, obviously this wasn't a promise of judgment within the 40 days because it didn't happen. Although judgment came later, but the 40 day promise, it wasn't a, 
it wasn't a uh, unconditional promise like we looked at last week, but rather it ended up being a warning, all hinging on the repentance of the Ninevites. So they were they were ultimately destroyed 150 years later by the Medes. But the 40-day warning, again, that's what it was. It was a warning, not an unconditional promise. But we do know this, guys. We do know this for a fact. Only somebody who is blinded by their own pride would be angry at such a thing as we see. So this guy was blinded. This prophet of God was blinded by his own pride. Whether it was a national pride or whether it was just a self-righteous pride that, that these people are, they don't deserve it but just because they're so wicked or, or, or a combination of all the above. This guy is prideful and blind. And in verse 2, So we see clearly that he's angry. Verse 2. Um, we can't know exactly, again, what's going on through Jonah's mind, but one thing we know that he's aware of, being a prophet of God, he's aware of God's nature as a gracious God because he, he, he repeats it back to him in verse 2. He's aware of his nature as a gracious God, which he got directly from God's law in Exodus 34.6. And some of the other prophets repeated this as well. Matter of fact, the psalm that I read, Psalm 103, repeated it. But Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So Jonah knew this about God. He also would have known, again, from his own experience, God was compassionate and gracious as well. Which just makes it even more mind-boggling, his, his selfishness. What we see... Beloved, is that although Jonah responded, as, as we saw the last couple chapters, he responded, he called on the Lord to rescue him at the bottom of the sea, he sacrificed to him with thanksgiving, he obeyed the Lord's voice the second time and went and preached the message. But what we see, his repentance was not a full heartfelt repentance at all. It was not. The rod of God's discipline had corrected his rebellion, right? It, it turned him away from from going to Tarshish to Nineveh. But it did not fully remove it. It corrected his rebellion outwardly, but it did not remove it. What we see in, in, in verse 2 here, guys, look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness to one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah here is justifying his disobedience is what he's doing. And he's revealing that he thought he was right all along. There is no true heart inner working of repentance going on. His heart is not right. It's, it's absurd and, and, and it's disturbing. This prophet of God, his, his mindset is disturbing. And so asking for God, look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Asking for God to take His life for these selfish reasons is bad enough. Okay, It's bad enough because only God has the right to determine when we die. Okay, He has the right. He is the giver and taker of life. But what makes it even more so, what makes it even worse, is to ask God to take His life because He saved Nineveh. 
It just blows your mind. It's, it's incredibly selfish and incredibly sinful, his mindset. As compared to... If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll, I'm going to read it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to Paul's mindset. Because we want to, we want to bring some balance to the, to, the, to the conversation that, you know, it's not necessarily sinful... To want to, to want to, uh, to die, to want to escape this life, but it's what's your motive, what's your reason? Jonah's was sinful. Lord, I can't believe you showed mercy. I'd rather be dead than cities and Ninevites saved. That's his. But listen to Paul in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse six through eight. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. Paul's desiring death right there. He said, it's better if I die. Why? Because I want to be with Christ. Not because I'm mad at God for saving these sinners. And then in Philippians 1.21, he even says it even just more clearly. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That kind, beloved, of, 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 of wanting to escape this life, and be that is healthy. If, if you, like Paul, you just desire to be with Christ. You, you, want, you want that, that, that faith to become sight, and you, you can't wait. You look forward to where you don't have to struggle with sin anymore, and you get to be in the presence of Christ. Amen. But Jonah is far from that. So that was the first sub-point, and by far the longest one, guys, is we see he is angry at God's saving grace. Secondly, we see he couldn't care less about people. He couldn't care less about people. You guys can say it, okay? What's the second greatest commandment that Jesus gives? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? The first being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So the second greatest commandment you see this guy, he is nowhere near that. He does not love his neighbor. He does not love his enemy. Now think about this, guys. Look, look, at, look at verse 5. This is verse 5. This, this second, this sub-point B. He couldn't care less about people. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself. Picture this. He made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Now, had not the people repented, right? We know the story. The message went out and the people repented and God relented and gave them mercy. Now, had the people, had, had the people not repented, then Jonah would have understandably went out of the city shaking the dust off of his feet. And saying, your blood is not on my hands. We preach the mess. I preached the message that God gave me. And you wicked Ninevites, the judgment of God is rightly going to come upon you. You remember, what, you remember what Christ told His disciples, right? Go into these towns. Preach the gospel. And if they reject your message, shake the dust off your feet. Move on to the next town. It, it, it's, it's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of God's judgments coming to you, you heard the truth and your blood's not in our hands. 
But that's not what happened. But the people did repent. They did repent at Jonah's preaching. He should have been, as a prophet of God, he should have been staying in the city, helping and discipling any way he could. And so he says, it says in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, that, that he made a shelter for him. He made some kind of makeshift shelter. And he, he tried to get comfortable in the shade so he could sit back and see what was going to happen in the city. Now most every commentator that I read to it, to it, all of them, I think every one of them, was, I mean, what's going on in Jonah's mindset here? He's, he's trying to get comfortable under the shelter to see if the Lord's going to change His mind again. Maybe He'll go ahead and bring judgment. I'm going to sit back and see. Again, it's all just disturbing. Thirdly, the, uh, sub-point C, He cares. Again, all of this is under Jonah's gross selfishness and pride. Thirdly, we see He cares only about His own comfort. He cares only about His, only, or his own comfort. Look at verse uh, 6. It's going to be the end of verse 6. But so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. We finally see this guy being happy about something. And it's about a stinking plant. Literally, what, 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 what the text is literally saying, if you, look at, if you look at verse 1, it says where it says, it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Literally what that means, he became angry with a great anger over Nineveh's salvation. Think about that. Prophet of God is angry with a great anger over Nineveh's salvation. And then here in 6b, literally it's saying, rejoice with great joy over his planet. Beloved, can you see how incredibly self-centered and cruel, really cruel this is? This guy, he just cares about his own comfort. He could care less about the souls of people. The man, he's happy that he's got this shade from the Lord. Which, again, from the Lord. He didn't even give to himself. You know what it reminded me of? Three different times you're going to see here in the next few moments. as I'm, Because what we're dealing with is absurdity. That's what, that's what keeps going through my mind. is absurdity. This is absurd. And, and three different times my mind goes to the abortion mill. This, this kind of selfishness of kind of just wanting your own comfort, it reminds me of people that, that, that we've seen, especially a couple years ago when COVID first hit, and especially when some of the, some of the abortion clinics in Texas were closed. So even the, and at that time we were going to the one in Norman, so it was even more crowded than normal. And so it's all the time when COVID hits and the mass, the, the, the mass laws are coming in, or you know, everybody's just fearful. They weren't even laws yet, but but what you would see at the abortion clinic, guys, is the same kind of self-centered absurdity. They would be lined up because the crowds were so big, they would be lined up outside again to go murder their baby six feet apart with a mask on. And they got to be comfortable. Got to make sure they don't get the virus as they're going in to murder their baby. Can there any? Can there be anything more selfish? That's what it reminded me of. Or worse, and you see this. You see this all the time. The ladies coming out, or the or the or the or the 
the fathers with them, rejoicing and thanking God, their God, it's not the true God of heaven, but thanking God that their, their problem is gone now. Their inconvenience is gone now. We got rid of that parasite. I've seen it. Only concerned about their comfort. Only concerned about their comfort in life, their convenience as they murder their own child. Absurdity and selfishness and cruelty that just demonstrates the depravity of mankind. Fourthly, under Jonah's gross selfishness and pride in verse 8, 8b, but I'll read the verse. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better, me, better to me than life. So what we see, fourthly, is his second death wish. His second death wish. Oh, and in verse 9, verse 9b, uh, says, go ahead, I'll go ahead and read verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. So we see his second selfish death wish. His second selfish death wish. There's no doubt now. There's no doubt that Jonah is, is feeling it physically uh, from the scorching heat. So he, he, is, he is feeling very faint. He's very weak. But literally, he's only thinking about himself. That's what we see. <laughs> it, it, he's saying this, You, God, took my plan away. I can't believe you took my plan away. And obviously, it's the plant that um, God gave him, right? Jonah didn't cause it to grow. God gave it to him, but he's still complaining. You took my plan away. I rode out to the side of that like a selfish child. You give them everything they have, and then they complain when you take it away through their, because of their disobedience. That's what we have. We have a selfish little child and a prophet here. He's way more interested, again, in his own comfort than Nineveh's conversion. That's what the Lord is trying to get him to see as we'll see as we move on. The Lord in asking these questions. Here's the absurdity, guys. In verse 3, we see Jonah's angry at God's right to rescue and save thousands of souls. That's what he's angry about. And in verse 8, Jonah's angry at God's right to destroy a plant and take away his comfort. Do you see the absurdity? You could have just entitled this sermon Absurdity. Because that, that's what this guy is. You know, we don't know what happens to Jonah at the end of this. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hopefully he repented. But man, the guy is troubling. So secondly, we see Jonah's, we see Jonah's gross selflessness and pride. Secondly, now let's look at the Lord's gracious words and deeds. The Lord's gracious words and deeds. Verse 4. Is, or point number, uh, sub-point number one. First of all, we're going to look at His gracious words. His gracious words. In verse 4, we see, and this is after Jonah's first death wish, and then we see the Lord saying, do you have good reason to be angry? It's a very gentle reproof from God here. It's also merciful that He didn't kill him. <laughs> Lord, take my life. He, he could have. He could have done it at any time. He could do that with us. 
But God was very gentle. It's a very gentle reproof. In other words, he's saying, you're, you're angry at me for extending my grace and mercy to the Ninevites. Is that correct? <laughs> do, you, do you have good reason to be angry? So, so the reason you're angry is because I extended grace to the Ninevites. Is, is that a good reason? Now turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. We'll turn back there. And just making a... Uh, we, won't spend, we won't be here long. But just to make a point, that's, it's rather obvious who he's acting like in this text. Uh, Luke 15. And we're just going to look at verses... And we'll look at verse 25 through 32. Obviously, the younger, the younger brother's coming, right? He's repenting. Uh, he's coming, coming to his father. It's a picture of salvation. It's a picture of the, the person realizing their sin and they, and they come to Christ or find forgiveness. And then you got this older brother. It's a picture, the older and younger brother, guys, it's a picture of two sinners. It's a picture of two sinners. And the older brother is a picture of the self-righteous. The older brother is a picture, guys. If you go back and just read the context of this whole section in Luke, Jesus is telling this, He's telling this parable to the Pharisees to try to point them out. You're the older brother. You're self-righteous. And, and, and listen to the self-righteousness of the older brother and, and what's going on with Jonah and, and what we know about the Pharisees and the scribes and these self-righteous men. That's who Jonah's a picture of. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Right? Hey man, there's a sinner converted. There's a sinner converted. And, and he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Heaven's rejoicing. Heaven's having a party. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you self-righteousness. Right here, guys. This is the, this is the Pharisee and the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the parable that Jesus told. Remember the Pharisee? I've done all this, Lord. I'm so glad I'm not like other men. I've fasted. I prayed twice a week. Yada, yada, yada. That's, that's who the older brother is. It's another picture of a Pharisee. I've been serving you. I've never neglected a command. Well, that's self-righteousness. I've never neglected a command. You've, but you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours comes, this, this sinner, the sinner who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, right? He's a sinner. I'm not a sinner like this guy. You kill the fattened calf for him. Sounds like Jonah questioning God's justice. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me and all that, that, that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has, become, has begun to live, was lost and has been found. Hey, I'm going to tell you right now because if I don't, I'll forget Trish and I heard this sermon in person at a Jeremiah Cry conference years ago, like in 2017. Vody Barkham was there. But you can find it on YouTube, probably sermon audio, but Vody Barkham's message on the older son. He preached an entire sermon on the older son, and it's very convicting because we've all got a little bit of older son in us, or older brother. Older brother, older son. We've all got that Pharisee in us that wants to rise up. But that's what Jonah is a picture of, guys. Jonah is resembling the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day rather than a prophet sent from God. 
I can't believe you would save these sinners, these wicked Gentiles. Now, I've kept your law all along. But we see God's gracious words. We see God's gracious words in verse 9 as well. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Another question here. Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Again, the Lord is being very kind and gracious with this man. Okay? It's similar, it's similar to, to the Lord asking Adam in the garden after they had sinned. Adam, where are you? Do you think God really needed to know where he was at? He knew. But but the Lord was the Lord was trying to give Adam a chance to fess up and repent. Adam, where are you at, man? What's wrong, son? But what did Adam begin to do? They, they begin to justify their sin. So, so, it's, so it's very similar here. The question in verse 9 is, is most certainly given to draw out the answer that Jonah gave in verse 10. The Lord is trying to draw out the absurdity to try to point out His hypocrisy and His absurdity to reveal His guilt. Many times that's what we should do. Christ did the same thing. He would often answer a question by asking a question. And so he's, he's trying to reveal someone's guilt. That's what we should do at times. We should ask questions to help maybe reveal someone's guilt before God. A, a simple question, right? Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? You know that's adultery. You know God sees all your thought life, so it's absurd to try to run and hide from God. Those type of things. Asking questions. Because sin leads to foolishness. Foolish thinking, foolish living, and absurdity. Again, I, my mind went to the abortion clinic. Or, or, or maybe a sign that, that, that we hold at the abortion clinic. Maybe a sign, that the signs that we have. It says, babies are murdered here. That is a very shocking sign for a reason. To expose the evil and the absurdity of what's being done. I don't like that sign. I don't like signs with disfigured babies on it. It's very graphic, but it's used because we live in a culture that's so absurd that our government pays for this stuff, but that's what's going on in there. So it's these type of things the Lord is trying to expose the evil and the selfishness and the hypocrisy and the absurdity in Jonah's thinking and in his actions. God had been compassionate to Jonah and given him the plant. And whatever verse that was, he saw, you know, God's, he, he cares for our needs. So he gave Jonah a plant to cover him in a shade. And so that was an act of compassion. He knew that Jonah needed rest, but what God knew more And when he sent the worm to devour the very plant that he sent, he knew that he needed repentance. He needed repentance more than he needed just comfort. He's trying to point out to Jonah how hard his heart is. But beloved, before you and I point our fingers at Jonah, we have to to ask, what about you? Okay, I ask myself these questions as I prepare. So, So what about you? And on a practical sense, right? Do you care more about some of the mundane things in the world? Now, even these things are good things. They're blessings of God. God gives us everything we have. So I'm not 
saying these things aren't important. But obviously we should be thankful for everything in our life. But you care more about mundane things. Maybe your yard, right? It's okay to want to have a nice yard. Maybe your garden. It's okay to grow a garden. We, we do those things. Maybe your vehicles. Maybe a, a, some kind of a hobby. You care more about these kind of things than, than those who are perishing. That's the question. We always have to ask ourselves in the Christian life. We always have to examine where we're at and make adjustments and, and, and repent in areas of our life. Do you care more for your comforts than for the Great Commission? The souls of men. And I'm not comfortable talking to people about Jesus Christ. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, get over it. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It makes everybody feel uncomfortable. And this, guys, money, this is for all of us, money and time really reveal what's important to us. How we spend our money, how we spend our time. Okay? Those are, those are things we have to look... I don't look at your life and determine that. You don't look at my life. We look at our own life. And we say, what kind of adjustments do I need to make? What is my life telling me that are my priorities? Secondly, we see the Lord's gracious deeds. Now, we saw His great. These were gracious questions. It's very, very gentle. Trying to, trying to show the prophet where he's at. Now we see His gracious deeds in verse 6. Verse 6a, So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to shade, to be a shade over his head. To deliver him from his discomfort. So it's not that the Lord didn't care about his discomfort. He graciously provided. And I really already made this point that he had compassion on this selfish prophet. And then in verse 7, we see another one of his gracious deeds, which I already made reference to, that he appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. You say, man, how is that gracious? He gave the guy a plant in his compassion for his comfort, but now he takes it away. How is that gracious? Because, what I said a while ago, all of this is meant to lead Jonah to repentance. That's the most gracious thing God can do. That's the most gracious thing we can do in a person, with a person. is, is to help Lead that person to repentance. And so what do we see Jonah? We see him, right? We see him, we see him whining and complaining about taking his plan away. And so we have to ask ourselves, guys, again, by way of application, do you praise him only when he gives? It's easy to praise God when he gives, is it not? I mean, that's for all of us. Man, when God provides, amen. And yes, we should. We praise God. Because not to do so, we'd be taking God's grace for granted as, their, as our provider. And so, but it's easy to do that. It's easy to praise Him when He gives, but, but much of life, guys, I know you guys know this. And the longer you live, the more you know it. Much of life is about experiencing loss. It really is. And it goes back because we live in a fallen world. Death is a reality. Things decay. We live in a fallen, sinful world. We live with other selfish, sinful people that are going to let you down. Death itself takes people from us, right? But beloved, we have to ask ourselves, who's in control, right? Who's in control? My mind always goes to Job when you think of these things, God, given and taken away. In Job one twenty one, Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked 
I shall return there. I had nothing when I came into this world, and I'm taking nothing with me. As believers, we should have a good understanding of that. Although sometimes it's harder to practice that. To under, really, really, really believe that and, and rejoice in it. As he goes on to say, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now again, that's easy. That sounds good preaching it. It's not so easy to live it. But And then in verse 22, he goes on to say, Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Quite a contrast from Jonah. And I know you and I have probably fallen on both sides of that at different times in our life. But we see, we see, the, we see the obedience, that, that how we should respond when God gives and when He takes away. It should result in what, I think, who was it, Mason last night? Talked about, right? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord all of, at all times. Praise the Lord. He deserves our praise. And then lastly, in, um, under point number two, or under uh, subpoint B, His gracious deeds, in, in verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. Again, we see God's sovereignty over all the areas of life, do we not? Nature itself. Beloved, and what we see is God knowing what we need. What we need. He was giving Jonah exactly what he needed to bring him that discomfort to, to reveal to him. Again, after that, the, the questions that he asked. And so once again, he's doing all of this to get Jonah to a place of repentance. So we see Jonah's gross selfishness and pride. We see the Lord's gracious words and deeds. And thirdly, we see the Lord's great comparison of the two. Meaning the Lord's great comparison of, of really Jonah and himself. Or, or Jonah's response and his response. In other words, he's gonna, God is going to show Jonah where the absurdity really lies. Verse, and and, and that will be in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and the left, as well as many animals? So God gets him to the point, beloved, of, of, of making this ridiculous confession at the end of verse 9. Yes, I have good reason to be angry even to death. God got him to that point to make that confession. To reveal, again, the absurdity. Just, it's ridiculous. So that, because we see who has the final say in the story. We don't know what happens after this, but what's recorded in the canon of Scripture, the Lord has the final say. So the Lord wanted to get him to that point and then have the final word. So first of all, the contrast here, the comparison. We see first of all, uh, and I believe, yeah, we just have two, two sub-points. The first one is a meaningless single plant. Okay? So it's not only a plant, it's just one plant. It's not even like a hundred plants, it's one plant. You had compassion on one plant. 
That, that's what he says in verse 10. You had compassion on the plant, which by the way, for you, you, which you did not work, you did not cause to grow. I gave it to you as a gift, which makes it even worse. You had compassion on one plant. You didn't have the ability to create it. You didn't earn it. Obviously, you didn't earn it by being thankful. And you didn't cause it to grow. I did. I gave it to you. And it was only here for one day. It's a plant. It's one plant. And it's for one day. Again, I I believe the Lord has pointed out where the absurdity really lies. How about this absurdity? Again, bringing it to our own day. How about this absurdity? Murder the baby for the crime of the father. That's absurdity. I don't know why my mind it just kept going to this issue going on in our day because it, it's rather one of the most absurd things when you, when you talk to a person with this mindset how much darkness must be in that mind where a person can literally try to justify yeah, kill the baby. Well, what about the rapist who, who actually deserves death? And then they'll turn around and say, see, you're not about life. You believe in capital punishment. I mean, you're okay with killing a baby, but somebody who God says deserves to die, who takes another person's life because they're made in the image of God, you say it's sinful. Woe to those who call evil good, good evil. But, but that's, that's the absurdity. We must point out such absurdity, beloved. And it's not just abortion, obviously, any area of life, but we, we always want to bring the gospel into the conversation, right? That's why it's so important to understand what true, why people should truly feel guilty. That's why, that's why it's so important to, to explain these things that, that a mother is guilty in an abortion. She is, she is a murderer. And, and it's grace to tell them that because then they're open for the gospel. Then they understand their guilt and that they can be forgiven and cleansed. But if we lie to them and say, oh no, it's not that big a deal. You're just a victim. No, they're not a victim. They're a culprit. And, and, and that's when the gospel comes in and makes sense. Because those mothers can be forgiven. But we've got to be honest with them. Truth is what people mean. Truth is what people mean. I know people personally. They had an abortion. But now they have come to Christ. And they understand that what they did was sin. It's not, the, it's not the unpardonable sin. But we just have to call it what it is so that we can bring the good news of the Gospel into the conversation. So that's the, 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 the contrast. Is, is his attitude towards this meaningless plant as compared to sub-point B, multitudes of souls and even animals. Multitudes of souls and even animals. Even animals are, who are more important than a plant. And then the, the, the question, just real quickly, of the 120,000 that we see in verse, in verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and the left? Now, I don't want to stay here long, but there are two interpretations to this phrase. That, that phrase, don't know the difference between uh, the right hand and the left, what this expression refers to, this is one interpretation, this is one view refers to the spiritual and moral ignorance of the whole population of Nineveh. And, and, and again, I'm going to give the two views. I don't personally agree with this view. It could be right. 
We don't know for sure. That's why there's two views here. And the reason why I don't is when I think about Romans chapter 1, I have, I have trouble with this view because of Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. And again, Romans chapter 1 is a picture of men and their depravity really just sinking further and further into depravity. And in verse 28, it says this Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Verse 32 is really what is why I don't agree with this view, with that understanding of it. Um, because the people in Romans 1 that I just read about, they understand the difference between right and wrong. Because of what it says in verse 32. They understand, they know the ordinance of God, being made in the image of God, having the law of God written on their hearts, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do them, but then they give hearty approval. We just look at our culture and that's what we see. Because I think that phrase, I think that the the 120,000, and this is the other view, the other interpretation of that, I think the the 120,000 is speaking about those who don't know right and wrong, which would be inference. And so those are the two views. That it's really not important. The, the view I hold would be the majority view, but it could be the other, okay? But what is important, guys, in this text? What is important in, in the very last verse? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? That's what we don't want to lose sight of. Nineveh, many people, many souls as compared to your one plant. Jonah, many people, many souls. You know the words, guys, of of, of Jesus in Mark chapter 8. What did He say? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Do you hear the value in a human soul? What will it profit you if you gain the entire world, all of the money, all of the pleasure, all of your desires, all of the power, all of the fame, all of the recognition, all of the comfort, all of the plants. And and yet you lost your soul. In other words, Jesus is saying one soul is worth more than everything in the world. That's how absurd Jonah's mindset is. I mean, he's accusing God. How could you do this, God? And then he's so rejoicing over his plant. And he's so angry that he took his plant. Just the hypocrisy. Hundreds of thousands of souls, whether it's 120,000 souls or whether it's 600,000 souls, really doesn't matter. It's hundreds of thousands of souls. And Jonah, it's the same mercy I've shown to you. 
How much more is the sovereign grace and mercy shown in this story, guys? This is a point I haven't made, but I know you guys have thought about. He not only saved, right, and had the Lord not only saved and had compassion on such a vast number of extremely wicked people. You guys remember back in the introduction. And I forget where I th- Oh yeah, it was in the, the prophet Nahum describes the wickedness of Nineveh. Violent. Violent. They would skin their victims alive. These are the type of people that God saved. And so He not only saved and had compassion on these extremely wicked people, but He did it through a man who didn't even desire their repentance. So this story is about God. It's about His mercy. So what do we make of the man Jonah, guys? That's that's the text. It ends there. The story ends. So to add to it, it would just be my opinion. But what do we make of the man Jonah? I don't know. (laughs) It ends. We don't know what happens. He is an enigma. He really is. Multiple guys use that word. Sinclair Ferguson, who I love listening to, I love reading, he, he was really strong on that word. I could just hear him saying it in his accent. But that's what he is. He's an enigma. This guy is a mystery. You know, Samson was kind of that way. When you look at Samson's life, it was so inconsistent. But then you see Samson in Hebrews 11 being commended for his faith. We don't see nothing else of Jonah. We don't know if he repented. We don't know if he, yeah, Lord, man, I was... We, don't, we just don't know. We know he's a prophet of God. The story ends here. I would like to thank, again, that, that, that Jonah saw selfishness and foolishness and repented. But we just don't know. So, so, so guys, a couple things here by way of application. Some things to think about when we look back at the book. In conclusion, really, to the book, what do we know for certain? What can we, what can we say we know for certain from our study of Jonah? We know that God is sovereign, right? I mean, just, if you guys remember in the introduction, the themes were He's merciful and He's sovereign. And that's what we see. That God is sovereign, right? He sent the storm. His prophet was trying to flee from Him. He sent the storm. God sent the storm. He appointed a fish. He appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. And then He commanded the fish to puke out Jonah onto dry land. Isn't that amazing? And I think I mentioned that when we looked at that. The animals, they always obey. Who do, who's the one who doesn't obey God? Sinful man. The creatures obey. The worm obeyed, right? He appointed a worm. The worm did what he told it to do. He appointed, he appointed a plant. He appointed a worm. And finally, he appointed a scorching east wind. So we, got, we see God's sovereignty throughout this story. And in His sovereignty, He is accomplishing His purposes. And what's His main purpose, guys? Back to the theme of the the chapter, really of the book and really of the Bible, it's the redemption of His people. If you want to know what the Bible's about, it's about the redemption of His people. He is sovereign in the details of our lives, down to the plants, down to the worms. He's not just sovereign, guys, in this story. It's a picture that we can know that God is sovereign over the details of our life. 
continually using all things, right? All things, Romans 8, 28, all things for our good to sanctify us and to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what we can know. He is sovereign. Sometimes it's painful, is it not? Remember what, remember what uh, Kyle was talking about last night? Though He slayed me. Sometimes, a lot of times, our sanctification is painful. It's painful when He takes away. We don't have answers other than we know our God is in control and other than when you learn who God is, who the, His nature, that He loves you, that He's more concerned with your holiness than your happiness, with your Christ-likeness than your, than your comfort. That's why it's so good to know who God is. He takes away. Maybe He takes away our comforts. Maybe He takes away our loved ones. He does. It happens to all of us. Death is a reality in life. These things He takes away. This life, beloved, why does He do these things? This life is a vapor and we need to be reminded of it. We need not get too attached to this world. What does it say? Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Right? On things above and not on things of this earth. Keep your eyes on the big picture. What's the big picture? Your inheritance to come that Peter talked about. When we looked at Peter. Your inheritance to come. God wants us to keep our eyes fixed on that. And then the second thing we can know for certain from this narrative is the... the uh, or, or we also know for certain from this narrative the grace and mercy of God and the power of His Word. The, we, we see the grace and the mercy and the power of His Word. We see in His sovereign grace the Lord rescuing, Right? Rescuing some pagan sellers who cried out to their gods. They were idol worshippers. So we see him rescuing some pagan sellers, not just from a storm, but from idolatry, which would eventually lead them to hell. And then we saw today and last week God saving hundreds of thousands of vile sinners by the preaching of a hard hearted prophet who did not even want to be there, we see the power of His Word. We see the power of His Word. In conclusion, what does this mean? God doesn't need the perfect preacher with the perfect preaching to accomplish His purposes. And I say praise God for that. Paul said in Philippians 1, 15-18, some preach Christ from envy and strife and selfish ambition rather than with pure motives. So Paul recognized, hey, some of these guys, they're preaching Christ. Their motives are horrible, but they're preaching Christ. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Why do you think Paul could rejoice that Christ was proclaimed? I believe it's very simple. Because Paul understood what he himself penned in Romans 1.16. He understood that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he could rejoice. Hey, the Gospel's being preached. I know that the, the Gospel is powerful and God's going to save his people accomplish His purposes 
through the gospel being preached. So Paul understood this, guys, and I'm going to leave us with two questions. This is for you, okay? And then we'll sing our song of response. So this is for you. This is for all of us. I want you to take two questions with you. Chew on them, okay? Chew on them during this week. Do you rejoice when the gospel is preached? Do you rejoice when the gospel is preached? Because that's God's means of accomplishing His purposes of redemption. Do you rejoice when the gospel is preached? And do you rejoice when a sinner repents? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your compassion. We praise You, Lord, for granting us repentance. Lord, we are, none of us in here are any different than the most wicked, violent Ninevite. None of us in here are any different than the most depraved sinner in this world right now. We're we're no different. If it were not for Your grace, Lord, we would all be in danger of Your judgment. We would all be under Your judgment and under Your wrath and capable of literally any sin. So Father, we, we know that it's only because of Your grace. Your grace is what Titus tells us that teaches us and trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age. It's Your grace that trains us. It's Your grace that teaches us. It's Your Holy Spirit that empowers us. And so, Father, may we never hear a message like this and have a haughty spirit towards the Ninevites or towards Jonah. But, Lord, may we, may we look at this text, Lord, as Your New Testament writer said and understand that these things were written for our instruction. And so, Lord, may we always have a heart, Lord, that rejoices when the Gospel is preached. And may we have a heart that rejoices when sinners repent. And Father, I just pray for those in here. Pray for myself. Pray for those who may hear in the future this message, Lord, that we will examine our hearts in these areas, Lord. That we will examine what is the focus of our, of our thinking, of our, the priorities of our life, Lord. If we are placing undue priority on the mundane things of this life rather than Your redemptive purposes. Father, we thank You for being patient with us, Lord, as You are sanctifying us. None of us are there yet. But we praise You for sending Your Son. We praise You, Lord, for giving us a story about Christ and His Gospel to tell people who are no different than we are, made in Your image, living in rebellion towards You, who need the Gospel. Father, we thank You for that grace. Lord, we love You. And we praise You and we thank You for the the story of Jonah, Lord. And I just pray that You'll use it to, to edify Your people. In Christ's name, Amen.